As we go to prayer, let's just bow our heads and listen to the words of Colossians chapter 1 that remind us that unpack this, uh, this truth we've sung that, that there is no one higher than our God. And we know that God revealed himself most fully in his son, Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He also is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And Lord Jesus, that's the most important thing, really, that we can bear in mind this morning. Father, to to center our thoughts and and focus our attention on the fact that you, your word says, are Lord of all. Father, you're Lord of creation, you're Lord of the universe, you're you're Lord of our, our lives and our families and our hearts and our circumstances. Father, you're Lord over the kings and the presidents and the the worldly authorities, you are Lord of all. Father, when we remember that that is where you have exalted your Son to, that 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 is where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sits right now at your right hand, ruling and reigning, not one thing escaping his notice, not one thing beyond his power. Father, there's a sense in which even in the most turmoil-filled seasons, we can have peace because he is Lord. And because as believers in him, he's our Lord. Much more than that, or along with that, he's our Savior, and he is our companion, and he's our friend. So, Father, we acknowledge Jesus Christ this morning, his rightful place in and over our lives, and his right as such to speak into them through your word. Father, we understand that when we come to church on Sunday morning, we don't come to listen to a preacher preach sermons. We don't come just to sing along with joyful tunes with a worship team, we come to worship a risen living Savior who knows our names. And so, Father, whatever we carried in with us, we lay down before you now, whether it's something very, very good or something very, very hard, not so that we can hear the preacher, but so we can hear Jesus, who speaks to us through the foolishness of preaching. Father, we thank you for your word to guide us, for your spirit to instruct us, and we pray that in the next few minutes that you would do just that, that you would come and guide us in the truth of your word, that you'd guard us from from confusion and misunderstanding. Father, that you deliver our souls from all of that stuff that gets in the way of simply being with you. God, we'd ask humbly but boldly, because you told us we can be bold, that for the next few minutes we might see Jesus. May we see Jesus clearly as we go to your word. May we see him only as we go to your word. Father, in a little while we'll leave this place. May we do it rejoicing, not because we came to church, not because the, the songs brought warmth into our hearts, but because we sat at the feet of Jesus and heard him speak in a way that only he can to our deepest places in our lives. And we will glorify him for that and everything else in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And while you're doing that, let's send the kiddos out for Children's Church. Boys and girls, our five-year-olds up to our second graders. It's Children's Church time for them.
And it's time for us to get into God's Word. So as always, they're making their way out. Let's make our way into the Scriptures. I want you to turn with me to Acts 22. If you have a Bible this morning, you want to be in Acts 22. If you don't, you want to find somebody who does so that you can follow along as we look at the Scriptures together. We're, we're in the, the last, we're really kind of rounding the corner and, and coming down the home stretch here in the book of Acts, the story of the church. We saw last Sunday, just by way of reminder as you're making your way into the Scriptures to Acts 22, that a significant change took place in the book of Acts last Sunday, which is that Paul, always the evangelist, always the preacher, teacher of God's Word, went from being Paul primarily the missionary to now Paul the prisoner. He's now under, and he will be for the rest of the book, under other people's authority. But, but despite that fact, despite that's the case, what we're going to see is, is he's going to preach and proclaim and present the gospel as clearly, if not more clearly than ever, even in those circumstances. So where we pick it up this morning, again, simply be mindful, Paul is now a prisoner. And we're going to begin, actually, this is just sort of the way that things shake out. We know the scriptures are inspired, but the chapters and verse numbers aren't. So we're actually beginning with the final verse of chapter 22, and then we're going to work our way in and through chapter 23. And we'll do that. We'll begin reading in a moment. I want to read it in a couple of parts. But before we get into the scripture, before we look at the story itself, I want to begin by planting this sort of thought with you. And it's not original to me. It was actually first said uh, by the late great theologian John Stott one of the great evangelical minds of the last 50 or 60 years. And of all the really profound things Stott said, he said a few that I understand, and this was one of them. He said once that, quote, discouragement is the occupational hazard of Christian ministry. Discouragement is the occupational hazard of Christian ministry. And as someone who's in we call it full-time Christian ministry, I can tell you that is in fact true. Discouragement is an occupational hazard of Christian ministry. But what I also know is that it's not only true for pastors and preachers and missionaries, people like that, it's true of you as a follower of Jesus Christ as well. Discouragement is an, if not the, occupational hazard, I believe, of the Christian life. Because it strikes Sunday school teachers and worship team singers. It strikes deacons who are patching holes in the roof and, and, and moms who are raising their kids to follow the Lord. All of us grapple and deal with discouragement. It's an occupational hazard of being a follower of Christ in a fallen world. And, and I share that with you because I can't help but wonder if where we're picking the story up in Acts today, if the Apostle Paul had ever been more discouraged than where we find him here. We've seen Paul discouraged before, but I, I wonder if he's ever been more discouraged than this. Because remember, if you were here last Sunday, and to bring you up to speed in case you were not, in little more than one week's time, up to the moment where we're picking up the story, the Apostle Paul, having arrived in Jerusalem, his dream for months, if not years, in little more than one week's time, he has been accosted, accused, arrested, put in chains, he has been beaten, he has been brought to within just a couple of moments of being scourged in the same fashion Christ was before the cross. That's a rough week. And all of it happened, all of it came about because of one simple thing, his unflinching commitment to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to tell people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. Anyone and everyone who trusts him will be saved. And because of that, Paul is suffering. I would, in fact, suggest to you this morning that at the very least, at the very least, Paul was discouraged. And it may have run much deeper than that. 
And what the next few verses where we pick the story up this morning are going to go on to show is that there ain't no light at the end of the tunnel yet. Things, in fact, are going to get worse for Paul before or if they ever get better. To show you what I mean, I want to start reading in chapter 22, verse 30, down through the verse, excuse me, the first 10 verses, chapter 23. So follow along where this is what the Word of God says. It says, on the next day, and this would be the day after he had been, all these other things have been happening to him, he, he's been arrested, he's almost been scourged. The next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused, why Paul had been accused by the Jews, that is the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, why they had such a problem with them, he, this he is the Roman commander, the highest ranking Roman military official in Jerusalem, released Paul. And he ordered the chief priests and all the council, Jewish council, to assemble and brought Paul down, set him before them. Chapter 23, verse 1, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said to Paul, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group, and this is among, Paul is set before at this moment, just as a little aside, a group known as the Sanhedrin. It was 70 of the most powerful religious authorities in Jerusalem, but among them there were two factions. Here's what we're about to see about them. Perceiving that one group among the Sanhedrin were Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, we'll talk about that in a minute, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up, began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Well, that's new. Suppose a, a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander, this Roman commander who set this whole situation up, was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So he ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him back to the barracks. Now, I don't want to spend the bulk of our time in these verses here this morning, except to illustrate how this had become... This moment that we just read about together had become the Apostle Paul's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Because it had. You know, we know in the Bible, and perhaps as he was in custody, Paul was reminding himself, you know, it's been rough, but the Lord's mercies are new every morning. God's faithful, the sun rises, new hope, all these things. And, and perhaps as a new day began, after all he'd been through, Paul thought, well, it can't get any worse than it's already been. But it did. And it became his Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Let me quickly show you how and why it began in verse 30 with a sudden hearing. A sudden, unexpected hearing before the authorities. Because what happened is the, the Roman commander, the Romans uh, were occupying Jerusalem. Their number one job is to keep the peace. If, the, if it stays peaceful, Caesar stays happy, stays out of their business, all will be well. The Roman commander of the military in Jerusalem, he had taken Paul into custody and, and so he's responsible for what happens to Paul, and, and he wants to figure out, what is all this 
sort of turmoil going on around him. Why is everybody so mad at him? And what we saw last week is he was just about to scourge him because when the Romans couldn't think of anything else to do, that's what they did. Maybe he'll say something, but he realizes Paul's a Roman, can't scourge him. So he says, well, let's set up some sort of hearing and maybe I can get to the bottom of what's going on. So he drags Paul out of the cell, sets him before the Jewish council to see if he can get a straight answer on what the controversy is all about. But when in verse 1, Paul opened the proceedings, I don't know if he was supposed to speak first, but he did, says he looked intently at the council and he said, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And as soon as Paul made that statement, this sudden hearing, Paul, it turned into toward Paul physical assault. The hearing was called, Paul's brought before the council, and then he is immediately, physically, and probably based on the language, repeatedly beaten, simply for making this statement in verse 1. And all of this assault, this physical beating, was at the order, verse 2, of the high priest Ananias. This would, by the way, not be the same Ananias who came to Paul after he got saved. This is a different dude. And it says he commanded those beside him to strike Paul on the mouth. The reason he did that is because he took personal offense at Paul's message. Because what Paul was saying when he said that, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before the Lord up to this day. He's saying, hey gang, it doesn't really matter what you think about me. I know that I'm in sync with the Lord. I'm doing what he wants me to do. I'm preaching the message he wants me to preach. I am not out of alignment with his will whatsoever, which means what's the implication? (laughs) You fellas are. You're not doing what God wants. You are not walking with him, you're you're fighting against him. Well, the high priest, he's the biggest religious big shot in the land. He takes offense at that statement, that he would somehow be out of God's will. So he says, beat him. And just FYI, this sort of thing was consistent with what we know about Ananias' character. Jewish, trusted Jewish historian Josephus described Ananias as, quote, in his his records, insolent, hot-tempered, profane, and greedy. Great representative of the Lord to his people, right? In fact, multiple sources, both ancient and contemporary, say that of of the high priests of Israel, we know something about, he was perhaps, if not certainly, the worst. The most carnal, fleshly, wicked, greedy. He used to steal from the other priests in order to enrich himself, straight out of the offering box. And, And so this is a It's a bad situation, and and it's quickly getting worse. And I think it's appropriate to say, as you look at the next couple of verses, that Paul didn't handle the situation well. He certainly didn't handle it in the same way Jesus did when he stood before the same council on the same pavement and was made the same accusation, and he was beaten on the mouth and elsewhere. The Bible tells us when that happened to Jesus, very same place before the very same council, he didn't open his mouth. Remember, he was silent as a lamb before it shears. Not Paul! (laughs) And, and the physical assault, the next couple of verses say, brought out of Paul, third, an angry outburst. Because Paul said to him, and I love this statement, even if I shouldn't, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That's Jesus' language for hypocrite. He says, you're pure and holy, you're dressed up in your robes on the outside, but I know what you're like on the inside, you're wicked and you're corrupt, and you're decaying, and, and, and you're working in every way against God's will for this nation and for his people. You're corrupt. And, and while there's some dispute whether in verse 5 Paul was being ironic or being sincere when he said, I wasn't aware, brothers, that he was high priest, as if yeah, he may be wearing the robes, but he's not the man, or if he really meant it, I do think there's a sense in which Paul realized, you know, that may not have been the best thing to say at the moment. 
and tried to show some respect for the office, if, if not the man. And, and he must have had just a moment to sort of collect himself because what he said next prompted forth a violent dispute. A very violent and, and dangerous dispute. Because when you pick it up then again in verse 6, you realize that in contrast to sort of his impulsive, even fleshly remark in verse 3, I would suggest to you that Paul knew exactly what he was doing when it says in verse 6 that perceiving one group among the Sanhedrin were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, son of Pharisees, on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And the reason I say Paul knew exactly what he was doing, because as he said, Paul was a Pharisee once. He was trained as one. And what Paul knew, again, we've got the Sanhedrin, 70 religious authorities. Some of them are Pharisees. Pharisees believed in the possibility of resurrection. They believed that God did supernatural things. And, and while they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they knew God could do that sort of thing. But what Paul knew about the Sadducees, the other half of this bunch, this religious bunch, is they didn't. They were the theological liberals of their day. They said God doesn't do supernatural things at all. There's no spirit, no resurrection, no power, no nothing. So Paul thought, you know... In, in, in brilliant legal fashion, I need to get the heat off of me. I'm going to get them arguing with each other. Let's talk about the resurrection. They've had a lot of fun with that one. I'm on trial. He didn't say Jesus, just the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Let me change the equation, the conversation here. And so while it's safe to say that the Pharisees weren't exactly members of Paul's booster club, for whatever reason, some of them did rise to defend him in verse 9. There's a great uproar. Look at your Bible. Some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood up and argued heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. So suddenly Paul is able just to sort of step back and let him go at it. It's not about me anymore. That's what he did. But he may have been more effective than he meant to be because what verse 10 then tells us about this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day is that it forced Paul then to make another very swift exit right back into Roman custody. And while we're left to sort of fill in, if you look at your Bible, about a day's worth of time between the end of verse 10, verse 10 says a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid, having set the situation, Paul would be torn to pieces, he'd have to answer for it, he orders the troops to go down, take him away from them by force, bring him back into the barracks, we're going to get the sense about a day of time passed by, it's, it's really no stretch whatsoever, I believe, to suggest that all kidding aside, this was more than a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. This really may have been as discouraged as Paul had ever been, because now he had... The text is going to show us in about a day to think about what was happening. And ask, what in the world? Is this what I came to Jerusalem for? Was this my dream? Is this what I've been trying to get to all these months and in a week's time? I'm just right back in jail. I came here to preach the gospel. I came here to serve the Lord. I wonder if he sat in that cell, if he thought, you know, as he was making his way, you remember the story, through all those different ports on his way to Jerusalem, that's his passion. I can't stop and stay very long. I got to get to Jerusalem to preach the gospel. All along the way, what were his friends telling him? Don't go. It's going to be bad. You're going to... As Paul's sitting in that cell, I can't help but wonder if he thought to himself, maybe they were right. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I wasn't listening to God correctly. Maybe I didn't hear him. Maybe I was too proud or too determined or too whatever to hear what they were saying. I can't help but wonder if as he sat in those barracks, Paul asked himself the following question. Could this really be God's will for my life? 
would God really let this happen to me? You've asked that question. I know you have. Because you've gone through tough seasons. You're in one perhaps too. God, I've, I've, been, I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to do the right thing. I made it my ambition to follow you. And I may not be doing it well, but you know my heart. And, and, and this is my life. This is my story. Are you sure, Lord, that this is where I'm supposed to be? What I'm saying is you know what it's like to lose your grip on hope. We've all been there. Some are there. Many of us are there regularly. And I think, again, I think that's exactly what happened to Paul here because as I've said before, he was not a superhero. He was a man. A godly man, but a man. And in this case, this moment, a man who was suffering. And the reason I'm convinced that Paul had lost his grip on hope, maybe not with both hands, but certainly close, is because of how God responded in the rest of this chapter. What I want to show you in the time we have left is that from verse 11 down to the end of chapter 23, there were three things God did to revive Paul's hope. Three things that God only would have done knowing Paul had lost hope. Three things, three ways God moved to revive Paul's hope. To have not necessarily changed the situation, at least change his perspective on and his understanding of it. So let's look at what they are. And the reason I offer them, or I present them to you is because he offers the same three things to us, number one. The first way God moved in this moment to revive, give him 24 hours to sit there and stew on it, that God began to move to revive Paul's hope as he did so, number one, through his incomparable presence. A reminder of his, Jesus's, the Lord's incomparable presence. Look at verse 11. It says, but on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness in Rome also. Now God makes him a promise there, a really cool one that assures him there's more to come. That's not what I want to talk about here. He said, I want to talk about what I think is the really interesting and, and perhaps more relevant, at least for our purposes, thing that happened here. Besides, of course, the fact that Jesus showed up in a physical way. I mean, we kind of have to acknowledge that's the big deal here. Jesus shows up in a physical uh, manner. But because Jesus doesn't necessarily do that all the time, I want you to focus in on what he said. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth was this, take courage. Take courage. The reason I bring that to your attention is because as we read our Bibles and study them closely, Jesus is the only person who ever says that. That's Jesus' own personal salutation. Take courage. He is reserved in the Bible, that one, for himself. And I want you to know, he says it five times, once here, four other places. I'm not going to take you to each one, but I'm going to tell you something about that they all have in common. They are always, it's always a greeting. It's always a salutation spoken to someone in an impossible situation, humanly speaking. It's the people who are in need of healing, people who are facing, as Paul was here, persecution. It's what he said when he showed up in the storm and and calmed it for the disciples as they were in the boat, fearing for their lives. Jesus says it five times. He's the only one who says it, and he always says it to people who are scared and dealing with humanly impossible situations. 
And the common thread, if you were to trace, and you can go do this yourself, it's not hard, but if you were to go trace through those five confrontations or conversations, the common thread running through them all is Jesus' assurance to, to whomever he says it to that he is in control. That's always the message. I got it covered. My hand, both hands are still on the wheel. You lost your grip. I have not lost. In fact, my palms aren't even sweaty. What I'm saying is it's not merely in each of those five situations that Jesus merely shows up to, to recognize our need and sort of respond to it. Aaron's got himself another jam. Let me show up and bail him out. Finances are bad. Marriage is rough. Lost your job, whatever it is. Ah, got himself into another fix. I, I'll let him know at least I'm here. That's not what Jesus does. He shows up, he recognizes the need, he responds to the need, but much more than that, when he says, take courage, he is there to reassure us he's got all the bases covered. This is not breaking news. This didn't surprise me, he says. I'm not worried about it one bit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, the same goes for you. Because he made us a promise. He did it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's the foundation promise of the book of Acts. It's the foundation promise of the entire Christian church. It's a promise on which we are to build our lives once we've trusted Jesus Christ. He said this in Acts 1.8. You need to turn there. I'll tell you what it says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And if you've trusted Jesus Christ, the Bible says the Holy Spirit has not only come upon you, the Holy Spirit lives within you. His power is present in your life. You just forgot, as do I. He's in control. He's present with you. And I would encourage you, if you do nothing else with anything else that is said here this morning, go home and chew on that one for a while. His incomparable presence. He is with you, and let it revive your hope. The first thing God did was step in and remind Paul of, number one, his incomparable presence. Then he followed up, beginning in verse 12, with an act of what I call creative intervention. The second thing God did to revive Paul's hope was creatively intervene in this impossible, frightening, discouraging situation. Get your Bible and follow along from verse 12 down to verse 22. So Jesus has just shown up. He's assured Paul, this is what he does know. Here's what Paul doesn't know, beginning in verse 12, that when it was day, the Jews, this would be the, excuse me, Jewish opponents of Paul, formed a conspiracy. And they bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders, again, sort of back to this ruling Jewish religious council, opposed to Paul, saying, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we kill Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander, the Roman commander taking care of Paul, to bring him, Paul, down to you as though you were going, let's set up a little scenario, to determine his case by a more thorough investigation, and we, for our part, are ready to slay him. The word is ambush before he comes near the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. 
So he took him, the centurion did, led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander, in very untypical Roman commander fashion, took him by the hand, stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately, what is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. Do not listen to them. For more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him, who have bound themselves under a curse, not to eat or drink until they slay him, and now they are ready and waiting for the promise or cooperation from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one, you've notified me of these things. Let me ask you something. As you've read through the scriptures in your own study, whatever, have you ever noticed how often when God wants to do something great, he uses a child to do it? This is not an uncommon pattern in the scripture. David and Goliath, good King Josiah, what was he, eight years old, whatever, when he went, led revival to the nation. Isaac, the son of promise. This little baby named Jesus. Often when God does something great, he chooses to do it through the child. And that's exactly what happened here in one of Paul's most dark hours. Because if you pay attention to the situation here, here's the deal. In one corner, we have 40 Jewish conspirators, bad dudes, think knives and clubs. We want to take Paul out. In fact, we're so serious about taking Paul out, the 40 of us, we are going to make a covenant with one another. Nobody gets to eat, nobody takes a drink till Paul is dead. But that's not good enough. The 40 of us are going to go to the 70-member Jewish ruling council and get them in on the act. Now, I'm not great at math, but I got 110 guys lined up against Paul now, ready to kill him. And they're lobbying for the Roman commander to join them. What am I saying? Paul has no chance, right? No chance. The Jews are against him. The Romans are against him. The leaders are against him. The Criminal element, it would seem, is against him. Paul has no chance except. Except for the fact that it just so happened, look at verse 16, that the son of Paul's sister, we didn't know Paul had a sister, much less that she had a son. Some kid is hanging around where the conspirators hang out, some mother she must have been, 40 roughs all getting together, kids hanging out around there. He hears the plan. Either he's sneaky or they're not discreet. I don't know what's going on here, but the kid finds out what's going on. Son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. He comes to the barracks to tell Paul. And like automated doors just sliding open before him, he makes his way to the commander, the most powerful Roman military official in the land, without hindrance. Nobody says, hey, can I see your ID? He just goes right in, one to another, to the next, to the next. Just like that, Paul is saved. Saved. Spared what was about to happen. While presumably his enemies starved to death. Is that not the implication here? (laughs) Let me ask you a question. Would you love being on the side of a God who delights to do things like that for his people? I do, who's in? Don't you love knowing we have a God who does this kind of thing because he loves us? Because he cares for us? 
Because he is not only in control, he is furthermore involved. Listen, I'm not trying to be sappy or corny or anything like that, but we have talked about this in Acts before, and and I keep coming back to it. Maybe it's for my sake if nobody else's. But we've talked about the danger, in fact, the foolishness of looking at our impossible situations, looking at our trials and our hardships and saying, well, I got three ways God can come through, and he ain't doing any of them. He's got Avenue 1, Avenue 2, Avenue 3, and they're all dead ends. God must not be going to do anything. I think God loves it when we get to that place because he goes, oh yeah, I run the end around all the time. I do the reverse, I come in the back door, I sneak around the side. Why? So you know I did it and you didn't. That's how God works. He delights to work. Why? Because then he gets the glory. Jesus gets magnified. My point is simply this, that, that sometimes simply knowing He doesn't always do it this way. Sometimes he works in the very ordinary, and and he uses the the ordinary means of everyday life to to accomplish his will on our behalf, but simply knowing the fact that sometimes, as he did here, he will creatively intervene in our problematic circumstances, I would suggest has the ability to revive our hope. Say, okay, I I I can go another day. I can take another step. I can press on for Jesus actually much more than simply reviving our hope, renewing our hope. I think the fact that we know that about God ought to do something more significant than that. I think it ought to compel us to worship. To not just go, this is the the God who, and this is the kind of stuff the God I know does. No, this is who the God I know is. This is his nature. This is his character. I love what Ralph Davis says on this very theme. When he says, quote, sometimes the only, listen, Sometimes the only application a Bible text wants to make is to get you to fall on your face and adore him. It's not three steps, 12 steps, six moves. How about we just worship him? Because he's worthy of our praise. His incomparable presence, number one. His creative intervention, number two. Third and finally, the way God moved in in this instance on Paul's behalf to renew his hope, to keep him pressing on, was it through an act, thirdly, of unusual deliverance. An unusual act of deliverance. Let's go from verse 23 to the end of the chapter. And he, that's the Roman commander, called to himself two of the centurions. A centurion was a Roman soldier in charge of 100 men apiece and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night and proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Felix was the most powerful Roman authority in the land at the time, would have been a successor to Pontius Pilate. And he, the Roman commander, wrote a letter having this form, Claudius Lysias, that's the name of the commander, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. Here's the letter. When this man was arrested by the Jews and about to be slain by them, I came up to them with troops and rescued him. What a noble fellow. Is that what he did? There's a lot of the stories leaving out, if you remember. He says, I learned that he was a Roman. Yeah, as I was stringing him up to scourge him. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, and under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. And when I was informed that there would be a plot against the man... 
I sent him to you at once, instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris. That was about halfway to Caesarea where they wanted to get him. And the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. And when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he, Governor Felix, read it, he asked from what province Paul was. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also. And he gave orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Now, if you've been following along through this study of Acts, you may remember that Paul has had to leave town a lot. He goes to a town, preaches the gospel, gets in trouble, and has to slip out. And he is left in some rather unusual and creative ways. He's been let down in a basket over a city wall. He's slipped out multiple times under the cover of darkness. Sometimes it's after being beaten and he sort of limps away. He's escaped stoning. There was the the episode in Philippi where he's in prison and the jail is shaken and he's miraculously set free. Paul's had to leave town in a lot of different ways, a lot of creative and unusual ways, but I would submit to you that never in his or anyone else's wildest dreams could Paul have imagined leaving Jerusalem like this. Say, what happened? Well, look again at what happened. This is kind of a big deal. Because in verse 23, it says that the commander said, get 200 soldiers by the third hour of the night, that'd be 9 o'clock, with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. How many people is that? Somebody do the math. 200, 270. Somebody help me out. 470. 470. Right, remember it. Here's why. Because responsible for keeping the peace in the entire city of Jerusalem was one Roman cohort. That's what Caesar sent to keep Jerusalem under control. In a cohort cohort was 1,000 men. What just happened here? The Roman commander said, half of you guys get Paul out of town. Put him on a horse. Surround him with soldiers, armed to the teeth. And you deliver him, verse 35, to Caesarea. Caesarea, Herod's Praetorium, Herod's magnificent fortress that the Roman governor now called headquarters. I would say to you, if they had not done this under cover of night, you'd have thought Caesar was passing through town. 500 men saying, nobody's touching this guy. Let's get him safely to where he needs to be. Again, I'm not trying to be cute about this. I'm trying to be silly. And I'm not suggesting that this is the kind of thing God does every time one of his people gets into a pinch. I'm merely suggesting that when, as a Christian, you are the object of God's love, which you are, there's no telling how he might work or what he might do to see you through the situation, to get you safely to the other side. If he has to bring in half the Roman army to do it, that's what he's going to do. This is the God we serve. This is the God we love. This is the God we worship. Sometimes this is what he does. Like Paul, what I'm saying is he may provide you with unusual deliverance. And you know, whether he does that or not, and I don't know where your heart is today. I don't know if you're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm in the, the hope deficient category this morning or I'm doing just fine. I don't know where your heart is, what your circumstances are, where God has you, what's coming next, what you're just coming out of. I don't know what God's going to do with it. 
But if you're his, I know he's going to do something. Maybe it will be dramatic and unusual. Maybe it will be very simple and ordinary. I don't know if it's your family, if it's your money, if it's your work situation, if it's a na- whatever it is. I don't know what God's going to do, and I don't know how he's going to do it. But I do know that all of us share one wonderful assurance. And it is this. Paul wrote it himself in Romans chapter 8. I want you to look at it on the screen, and I want you to commit it to memory. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but willingly delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us whatever it is he knows that we need? Just say that to yourself. God is for me. Who can be against me? There's hope. There's hope, and it's why the big idea of the message this morning is that Christ never fails to care for his people. Christ never fails. You think he forgot. You think he's not coming through. You gave up last night. That's fine. He cares for you. He is for you. And he is with you. Father, I thank you for the assurance of your word. It's not stuff I have to make up to encourage my brothers and sisters. I simply have the humble privilege of delivering this reminder to our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Paul, though a great follower of Jesus and a brilliant mind, was also a man just like us. That he knew what it was like to be discouraged. He knew what it was like to give up hope, to look at the situation and say, God must be done here or he must be done with me. And then you show up. Father, I pray for the hurting hearts here today. I pray for the full hearts here today. Pray for those of us maybe in the midst here this morning who are saying, I better file this one away for someday. Father, that every day we would wake up and we don't know our circumstances and we don't know what our emotions will be and we don't know what's going to come. But what we do know is this, that if we know Jesus Christ, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Father, if everything turns against us personally, spiritually, Lord, in our nation, in our world, if things continue going away, we don't want them to go. That we know God has a better way and the world is saying, but God is for us. Who can be against us? Father, may we cling to the hope of your promise today. May we worship your son for who he is and for what he's done. And Father, would you just revive us, renew us, give us hope for another day that we might keep walking faithfully with you. In Jesus' name, amen.